So um, if we start off, just um, tell me a little bit about uh, yourself, uh, the farm, um, and, and how long your family have been farming here. So Warren Farming Thoughts has been in the Wilson family for three generations. My grandfather bought the farm in 1932. I think he paid about £8 an acre, <laughs> which is probably quite a good investment. Uh, and we've been here since. So my father farmed the farm after my grandfather. My father died 30 years ago, and I've been farming here since after a career in the army. So... Right, okay. But that, I mean, that must have made you quite a young new entrant into farming if you came from the army 30 years ago, just... Uh... Well, I was, uh, I was 30. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I'd had other things before coming back to farming in Norfolk. Mm. And what sort of size are we talking about here? Uh, farm's just under 700 acres. Mm-hmm. It was about 500 when I took it on. But over the last 30 years, I've been able to buy odd small parcels of land, contiguous land next door. Um, but those sort of opportunities are very few and far between, um, and uh, so we're just under 700 acres. And I'm guessing it wasn't eight pounds an acre when you uh, were gradually adding bits and pieces to it. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, but I haven't bought any land recently, so I would say that what I did buy has turned out to be a good investment. And. 30 years ago, what did the farm look like in terms of the cropping and uh, the, the way that things were being done? The reality is I'm doing the same cropping now that my father would have done 30 years ago. Our main crop would be malting barley because that's the one crop we can do really well. Um, malting barley suits our chalky soils. Uh, so that would be the main crop followed by wheat, which we can also grow, and sugar beet. Uh, I suppose the only real change is we used to grow peas mm-hmm. for harvesting, dried peas. I then moved on to vining peas for a while, but I dropped those some years ago now. And I rent land out to a potato grower for growing potatoes. But to be honest with you, as far as the actual arable cropping goes, uh, it's not dissimilar to what we were doing 30 years ago. In terms of the way that you farm, has that changed? In my case, not dramatically, no. I am still ploughing. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in minimal tillage or regen farming. I just have the equipment to plough, and I think it's a very fail-safe way of establishing a crop. Um, I'm obviously aware and open-minded to other methods, uh, but... No, we plough, press, drill, fertilise, spray, really in much the same way as we were 30 years ago. So I haven't seen any dramatic changes in the way that we're actually growing our crops. Um, The yields for the cereals are very similar. Sugar beet yields have probably increased by 50% over the last 30 years. but on the actual cropping side, that's probably the only main change, the big increase we've seen in sugar beet yields, whereas everything else has remained pretty static. What do you put the uh, sugar beet yields down to? Uh, Probably better breeding, Mm. um, but also better agronomy. I think 30 years ago, we probably didn't really use fungicides much on sugar beet, maybe sulphur, Um, but I think the seed breeders have done a very good job uh, and I think the use of fungicides and on some of my sugar beet, I'm now applying three fungicides. Mm. Uh, and I think that's having a big 
boost on the on the yields. So you haven't been hit too badly in the last in the last few years with the with the diseases that have been coming into the sugar beet crops. Um, yes and no. We have not had virus yellows problems, but we did have a bad problem with Cerakospa mm-hmm. two years ago. Um, but I haven't seen any virus yellows issues. And since we stopped, and I have stopped using near nicotoid treated seed, I haven't run into any specific problems with that. We're sitting at a wooden table. We'll both tap that, shall we? <laughs> in terms of um, what you brought with you, from, um, I'm going to come back to the farming in a minute, but um, I'm always very interested in people who've moved away from farming, have gone into a different career and then brought something back. What do you think you've, you brought back with you when you came back from the army in terms of a different perspective? Um, I don't know. I think that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I'm very glad that I spent time right away from Norfolk and in a different world, which the military obviously is a very different world. Um, What did I bring back to farming? I don't know. Probably the ability to think and plan ahead a bit. Um, And, you know, the army does give you very good training. And so, but specific to farming, I think it's difficult to put a hand on anything in particular. so more, yeah. a, more a personality thing, isn't it? But sort of a, a individual growth thing, probably. As much yeah, I think it is. probably teaches you to look over the top of things and mm-hmm. try and look at things from a different angle. Often, try and look at the other end of the argument and turn things around and um, see other points of view. Be more open-minded, but you know that doesn't mean to say that you need those that training from the army to do those things. So you've obviously taken a lot of measures to enhance the biodiversity around the farm can you and, and you've been doing this for quite a long time now so can you tell me a little bit about what you've done what's what's what sort of changing that respect around the farm well I think going back to you asking what changes I've seen on the farm probably the biggest change has been the introduction of agri-environmental schemes which must have started probably nearly 30 years ago now mm. um, but 30 years ago we did not have anything in the way of agro-environmental on this farm. Um, so I enjoy the conservation side of farming and love the wildlife. I went into a very early countryside stewardship scheme uh, before upgrading as the years have gone on. I'm now in the 14th year of a higher level stewardship agreement and I'm looking to go into a higher tier agreement starting in 14 months time hopefully Um, but I've done some quite extensive woodland planting Um, we've done a lot of hedgerow restoration Uh, we have a lot of pollen and nectar mixture Uh, have a bird reserve and so the agri-environmental schemes and woodland grant schemes have been the vehicles to allow me to do those things which didn't necessarily exist 30 years ago. Are they something that you would have done anyway? Or is, I mean, did they, I'm I'm guessing the agri-schemes kick-started it. Well, we might have done some, but the reality is without the funding, uh, it's very difficult to justify taking land out of production, Mm. um, particularly as, you know, most of our land is reasonably flexible, good chalk land, maybe awkward corners and that sort of thing. But um, without funding from agri-environmental schemes and grant schemes, 
um, I, I can understand why this work would not happen and would not be done. Yeah, there are going to be people listening to this who, who um, understand this completely and there are going to be people who um, are not so sure what high-level stewardship schemes mean, what higher tier means. Um, just for a complete layperson listening to this, what would that mean for a farm? You know, what, what would we see on a farm that's under these sorts of schemes that you wouldn't necessarily elsewhere? Well, there are different tiers of, to these agro-environmental schemes, um, from a fairly basic one, which would give you options for fairly basic conservation measures. But you can obviously move up to different scales, higher tier, um, and higher level um, is really it's it's asking you to do more than um, say the average farmer and there are different options um, as I said I've created a bird reserve and flooded a field and I've had financial help um, for putting in a wind pump which helps in flooding a field and that probably would not be available under a lower tier, what's known as the entry level scheme or mid tier scheme. So the higher tiers really are for a higher level of conservation. Um, and they're probably, certainly going forward, they're a bit more flexible. As to how you manage the schemes, they're less prescriptive. Um, it's easier for you with an advisor from Natural England to say, this is what I want to do which uh, might not have a sort of a black and white prescription um, and be able to be more flexible about how you manage certain options. And so if we look at just one of the features you've mentioned there, the, 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 the flooded fields, um, again, somebody listening to this and not really um, completely you know, immersed in it all, why on earth would you want to flood a field? <laughs> so this is land that I own, um, not far from the wash, which is a, an international um, renowned bird reserve. We have millions of wading birds that migrate through the coastline where we are. And the land where I've created a bird reserve is very close to that. So there are contiguous um, benefits. In addition, this land up until uh, probably just over 100 years ago, would have been grazing marshes, wet marshes anyway. After the First and the Second World War, of course, there was tremendous pressure for farmers to drain land and bring it back into production or bring it into production for arable cropping for the first time. And a lot of reed beds and dikes were, or old channels, creeks were filled in, the land was drained and all the fields are squared up and they were put into arable cropping. But they don't necessarily lend themselves to good arable cropping. It's some of the land is difficult to work. It's not naturally free draining. Uh, and it's not necessarily the most fertile land either. So if you're going to take some conservation measures and take some land out of production for the benefit of the wildlife, that is the obvious place to do it and the obvious land to take out of production. And I think that's the thing that will make so much sense to people listening to this, because you also mentioned, call, you know, difficult corners. Um, actually, if it's more effort to get that land productive and if you're sort of having to spend an awful lot of time, it does make sense, doesn't it, to move it into, into wildlife measures. What um, impact have you seen? You know, you, because you've, you, 
you've been doing this a long time now, so hopefully you're seeing a lot of impact in terms of nature recovery and things like that. Yes, I think it's very difficult to quantify without doing proper surveys, and we have had some bird surveys and mammal surveys and very biodiversity surveys done. I mean, when I first created the bird reserve on the marshes, in the first few years, immediately, we started getting breeding avocets, red shank and plover. Uh, and this is on land that three years earlier would have been growing wheat. Mm. So it would not have been, it would have been a hostile environment for those sort of birds. Um, but we've seen a diversity of flora. I find orchids growing occasionally in places where they certainly wouldn't have grown before. I find grass snakes in areas where, again, they would have been arable fields. So there is biodiversity there and um, anything we can do to help it, this is just one of those things. Mm. Can you put a value on it? I mean, what are the value the value points of, of doing this sort of work? Uh, a financial value? No, I don't think you can put a financial value on it. Um, I enjoy doing it. Uh, so the value to me is the enhancement of, you know, the wildlife on the farm. And that's the main value that I can put on it. Do um, people, uh, you know, do, do you share, do, people, do groups come and see th- things? Do you have, do you have ornithological uh, groups coming up to see things? You know, how open is it to, to the public? The area where I have my bird reserve is not open to the public. Originally, as part of my stewardship, I had public access. Mm-hmm. Um, that was funded. Um, it's no longer funded. But the public access, I'm afraid, does also cause problems because where you have public access, unfortunately, you get disturbance. Mm. And I think generally the public don't always understand that wildlife and a lot of our rare wildlife does not appreciate walkers. And it certainly doesn't appreciate walkers who bring dogs. Mm. So... I'm afraid my bird reserve is specifically not open to the public. That said, I know one or two keen ornithologists in the area um, who understand um, the wildlife and the birds and about not disturbing them and keeping And they do sometimes go and have a look and see what's there and survey, but it has to be done in a controlled way. Mm. So I don't have any public access, but Generally, most of my farm is visible and there are other walking routes and public footpaths anyway. Um, so and, and nature does travel. So <laughs> Yes, it does travel, yeah. Um, so one of the things that's happening here um, all, all along the coast is obviously um, more and more landowners, farmers, farm managers are putting more and more land down to uh, biodiversity projects. Um, from your point of view, how important is that in terms of providing corridors for nature? Because as we have just said, nature travels. Well, I think it is important, but there has to be a balance between um, food production in farming and what we're prepared to give up for nature conservation. Um, I think nature conservation should always take the priority where you've got poorer quality land um, and linking areas up, that's fine. But we do have to remember we live in a world where the population is growing Demand for food is increasing 
the cost of food is increasing. Every year we're chopping down thousands of acres of Brazilian rainforest and thousands of acres of Malaysian jungle to produce food. And we have to be very careful about finding the right balance so that we are not exporting our food production industry to other countries. There has to be a balance. I don't honestly know where that balance is, but um, conservation, yes, but wall-to-wall rewilding across the whole of the county of Norfolk, obviously, no. Um, But the balance to me at the moment is shifting in favour of food production because the cost is rising in the shops and the pressure from the general public will be, we want food. Of course, on the other side will be the argument, no, we want wildlife. Where's the middle road? I don't know. And how um, effective do you think the new government schemes are going to be? And again, people who are new to this and and, and don't know that there are obviously a raft of different um, environmental schemes that are um, promoting biodiversity, promoting something. How, How effective do you think they are? Do you think they hit the right balance? Well, I'm very sceptical at the moment because we don't have any detail and I can't really say much more than that. Um, The little bits that have been released I've looked at and to be honest with you, they're just not very appealing Mm. because there are options for which farms are paid a very low rate to do work. And when you look at the cost of doing the work, um, it's probably costing the farmers. And the reality is farmers have to make money farmers don't make money they don't have a business it's as simple as that so so far from what I've seen I'm skeptical and the government has been very slow in releasing the information that we need to make proper decisions about what we're going to do in the future. Do you think they're slow because of everything else that's going on has taken their eye off the ball or have we not got the people in charge who totally understand What's going on in the world of farming? I think it's probably a combination of many things. I think having the resources at government level to really oversee these schemes and listen to the right people. I think there is a danger in government that there are too many single issue groups who seem to hold an enormous amount of lobbying and shout very loudly And the danger is that leads the government into making bad decisions which are not appropriate for land management. And so I I don't know what all the answers are, but um, at the moment um, we don't have the information that we need to make proper decisions about what we're going to be doing in five, ten years' time or two or three years' time, other than going into more agro-environmental schemes, which I am doing. You strike me as someone who thinks about that quite a lot, thinks about the future quite a lot, and thinks about your place and your farm's place um, in the wider scheme of things. Do you ultimately see a bright future for farming? Yes, of course, because there will always be a demand for food. And to be honest with you, at the moment, with crop prices where they are, um, as an arable farmer, I do see it. I am optimistic. And... Um, We do live in a time of uncertainty and, of course, we've got some hideous inflation in farming in terms of some of our inputs. Fertiliser prices and fuel prices have gone up very significantly. But ultimately, people don't want to go hungry 
and no government in its right mind will allow people to go hungry. They will need farmers and they will need farmers producing food. It, people's diets may change, but the government is not going to allow people to go to bed hungry at night because that is the root of anarchy. <laughs> and so I, the, I, I am optimistic about the future of farming. I think the wheel goes round and sentiment goes up and down. Um, but sometimes it's a three or four or five year cycle, 10 year cycle. But in long run, yes, I see a good future for farming. Brilliant. James, thank you very much indeed for your time.